Well, in light of uh, spring break upon us and the coronavirus, I think this is a pretty good turnout today, and I'm glad you are here. Kyle and Andrea Satterfield, you didn't think I saw you, did I? Did you? I looked back that way, and I was like, man, I feel like I'm back in Alabama. There's a couple. I did their wedding, and they still came to hear me preach. Can y'all believe that? What a five years ago. Today? Yesterday. Oh, God is so good. Praise the Lord. Uh, they live up near Kansas City, and so they were in Alabama and moved up to KC. And so uh, they're probably Chief fans, reckon? Kind of, sort of. All right. But also they love the Lord. What a great couple, and it's good to see them here. And uh, yes, I've digressed. I'm wearing glasses. I can't see anything. Yeah. So uh, God bless you. I'm glad you were here. Now, we've been studying the book of Daniel, and I thought about chapter 5, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the 5th of April and the 5th, uh, 12th and Palm Sunday and Easter. And I thought the 29th, we have a special occasion on that day of March. And then you start thinking about uh, preaching the last uh, part of Daniel's prayer and connecting it to that vision that Daniel's going to see, which is the most difficult one in the book of Daniel. I thought it would be better to take a hiatus from Daniel and let's ramp up and get ready for Palm Sunday and Easter, and I want to do that by calling your attention to John chapter 10. So if you will open your copy of the Word of God, as I studied this, obviously you think about, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. Later in verse 18 it says, and if I lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. There we are, right? Uh, crucifixion, resurrection. But as I studied this, I thought, maybe it would be good this morning, spring break, right? and uh, the condition of church life in general across the United States to talk about the flip side of this. And that is this. We not only have our good shepherd, but God has called men to be under shepherds under him. And so this is not only true in the New Testament, but it's also true in the Old Testament when God himself told Israelite leaders to shepherd the people. And we know what happened. Uh, they actually did not shepherd the people as God instructed them to do so. So God pictures his care for his people through the image of a shepherd and his sheep. There is a classic text for that. It is Psalm. Y'all have the virus? All right. Psalm 23. Uh, Psalm 80, verse 1. The Bible says that God is called the shepherd of Israel. Yahweh is our shepherd. Uh, in Isaiah 40, verse 11, God promises to bring his people back from the exile in Babylon. Y'all know about that. In learning Daniel, like a shepherd gathering his lambs in his arms. And God also, again, appointed human shepherds, leaders who were supposed to serve as God's representatives in the word of God, demonstrating care for his flock. But here's what we know. Instead of doing that, instead of bringing God's people, we might say, into the pastures of God's grace, they actually led the people to graze in pastures of empty religious ritual. Jeremiah, Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, they put a yoke upon the people of obeying the law in such a manner that it was legalistic, and it wasn't the grace of God at all. It was the barren fields of legalism. The Lord will actually berate the leaders of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 34. 
So my desire is to spend time in John chapter 10, at least this week and next week, and maybe possibly the 29th, and study this wonderful text of Scripture. But again, uh, I, am, uh, I think I'm confirmed in my approach of the parallel with the Good Shepherd and the shepherds that God has given to uh, care for His flock, i.e. the church, because great theologians of old have almost, without exception, drawn the same conclusions that we ought to look at John chapter 10 and Psalm 23 and the admonitions in the New Testament regarding a shepherd and his flock, and we, shall, we should draw parallels and principles of what shepherds after the heart of Christ look like. Y'all with me? So that's what we're going to do today. Let's just read. Now again, I will come back to chapter 10, verse 1. Trust me. But let's pick up reading in verse 11 of this wonderful chapter of Scripture. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. If we step outside of our uh, circle of influence. Let's even it, I might even say in SBC life this is a problem among churches and pastors. But in other, if we broaden the circles and we look across the horizon of shepherds that, that are among the people, supposedly shepherds, I would say that there's a crisis among pastoral ministry. Would you think there is? In our world, I want to submit that there is. One writer says it like this, the pastors of America have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops they keep are churches. They're actually preoccupied with what shopkeepers' concerns are. How to keep a customer happy. How to lure customers from other competitors down the road. How to package the goods for them so that the customers will give you a whole lot of money. Wow. Some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers. They pull in great sums of money. They actually develop splendid reputations. Yet, it is still shopkeeping. Religious, religious shopkeeping, to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The marketing strategies, he goes on to say, of the fast food franchise occupy the waking minds of entrepreneurs 
while they dream about the kind of success that will get the attention of journalism. A walloping great congregation is fine and fun, says Martin Thornton, but what most communities really need is just a couple of good saints. Isn't that so true? We need to be freed from the cult of the mediocre. God deliver us from trying to run a bigger and more effective shop. One other, one other writer, parentheses, nutcase. You know, I, when I have a book on my shelf like that, I wrap it in cellophane so that it doesn't harm the other books on my shelf. But the deal is, he says that the metaphor of shepherd is really only cultural. And God doesn't intend for us to use the metaphor of, cult, of shepherd anymore. As a matter of fact, he says that that's changed and there's been a shift in the 21st century. And the metaphor really should be a rancher. So whereas a shepherd will get down in the dirt with the people and get to know them and love them and care for them, their needs and their hurts, a rancher's different. He actually zooms overhead in his helicopter giving guidance and direction to workers below. You don't actually get down with the people. You just kind of corral them into a place and let everyone else do all the work. Well, I don't know if he read his Bible or not, but you know the word pastor actually means shepherd, right? And the verb to pastor means to shepherd people. So Jesus tells us early on in chapter 10 that there are robbers and thieves. Truly, truly, I say to you, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So we know that there are people out there that are thieves and robbers. And their intent is not to care for and love the people. Now again, let, let's go ahead and say this. There's only one good shepherd, and that's Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, at the end of Hebrews, we'll see it a little later, he's going to be defined as the great shepherd of the sheep. Why? Because the price he paid to redeem you and I. And that's why he's given that. So, but I want to remind you that we need a reformation among the role of pastors in the United States of America and across the world. We certainly go back to Second Peter and Jude, and he, he, they also in the New Testament talk about these robbers and these thieves. And the Bible says they, they creep in unnoticed, and they take advantage of the sheep, and they're good at lining their pockets. The Bible talks about this. They're fleecing the sheep in the very name of, of ministry from God. And we can be assured, folks, that there are robbers and thieves. And Jude reminds us of this. They were destined, they were designed for condemnation long ago. God will take care of them, right? The Lord will. But Jesus actually introduces in our text, beginning in verse 11, another kind, and it's called a hireling or a hired hand. And we see a few marks of the hired hand in verses 12 and 13. The sheep are not his own. The hired hand has no love for them. He has no attachment for the sheep. Also, when he sees a wolf coming, what does he do? Man, he's out of there. He leaves the sheep and he flees. The wolf snatches them. What strong language. And scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling. He flees because he's a hired hand. He, he has no sense of ownership. He has no sense of attachment to the people. And when there's a little bit of difficulty, he leaves. There's a lack of love. 
lack of responsibility, lack of help, lack of welfare for the sheep. When the heat is turned up, he's out of there. The hireling is not concerned about the sheep because in the verse 13, check it out, cares nothing for the sheep. Why? Because he's waiting on his paycheck. He's not really worried about the sheep. He's worried about an income. Now, we could say that these hirelings could think that they're rather good at shopkeeping. I have skills. I can organize. I can uh, administrate. I have the gift, gift of gab. I can talk. I can do all these things. I can chatter on for a while. Yet the Bible says there is no attachment to the sheep whatsoever. And I think many men... Uh, might I say this, uh, and even women today that are pursuing the ministry, even some women pursuing pastoral ministry, which is wrong for them to do, and to preach the word is wrong for women to do, but there's still that going on. But most men and women that pursue the ministry today sometimes do so, not most, a lot, think that, well, it didn't work out too good in the other vocation I have, so I'm going to try this as a second career. And thus... I went to school with some in seminary like this. Some were legitimately called later in life as they got older to the vocation of shepherding the sheep, but some were not. I want to remind you that I despise the professionalization of the pastorate. And we ought to all. We're not professionals. I am not a career pastor. I am a man called by God to preach the Word of God. And there is a very big difference between a career-minded person and jobs and being hired versus a man that is called by God. We are men who are called by God. The hired hand works for pay. But the Lord Jesus will shift here from a hireling to himself. Listen to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. Don't you love that? Uh, do you think the Jews, hearing him that day, would have been able to think about that, that metaphor, that kind of language? My sheep, they know me, the Bible says. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. This is personal. This is experiential. It reflects the Father and the Son's relationship. Amazing. His knowledge of us, think about this, has to do with divine grace. That's the only way it's possible. It doesn't mean that he is just cognitively aware of your existence. If you are a sheep and you belong to him, then this is a matter of covenantal grace that he knows you. That's the terminology in knowing. Now the flip side of that is, you know him by regenerating grace. You can't know him apart from the grace of God. Abraham believed God and it was put to his account, reckoned to him as righteousness. So there's no knowing him without divine grace. So we love him because he first loved us. Uh, we know him because he first knew us. My sheep hear my voice, right? And they come to him for they have been known by him. Folks, that's the terminology in the grammar. I know my sheep. They hear my voice and they come to me. Also notice that the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. What is this speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus' self-sacrifice for the sheep. It's one thing for a shepherd to say, I'm going to risk my life for the sheep. It's another thing to say, I'm going to voluntarily lay down my life. So this is sacrificial language, not just something that could happen by happenstance. If you're out shepherding your sheep and you risk your life for them, that's one thing. But Jesus is purposely saying to us, I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 16, we see he has other sheep not of this fold. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also. And they, what's the text say? Will listen to my voice. This is a glorious truth, is it not? Uh, It's an amazing truth that God has other sheep that will listen to his voice and come in. I think most scholars agree that this is obviously talking about who? The Gentiles. Now he's speaking to a Jewish audience, but he reminds them that I have other sheep, not of this fold, but I must bring them in as well. There is no such thing today of the Jew and the Gentile and the bond and the free. We're all one in Christ Jesus the Lord. Notice that he doesn't say you're going to have two shepherds and and two groups of people. You're going to have one shepherd and one flock. And Jesus has the goods to pull it off. When, when was this given to us? The fact that I'm going to send you out and I'm going to bring in the other sheep into the fold. It's called the Great Commission. Our church believes that. We, we live that. We breathe that. That's why we are here uh, in, in a lot of ways, right, as a church family, uh, to glorify God and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But just think of this. I have other sheep. They're not in this flock yet, but they will be. And the Great Commission goes forth from Pentecost, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the far reaches of the earth. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's gathering in his sheep from all over the world. As a matter of fact, if you look at an outline of chapter 10, he gathers his sheep, he guards his sheep, he gives his life for the sheep. That's next week, okay? But that's what he does for his sheep. They're all over the world, he gathers them in. Chapter 11, verse 49. If you've got a copy of the Word of God, it's good that you look at the text. Chapter 11, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Man, that's an unreal statement from someone who's lost. But notice what the text says. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Check this out. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, the clear understanding of John's gospel is that Jesus will draw his people in from all over the world. When this happens, they become his people. Do you know this verse, John 10, 16, was the very verse that fueled the fire for William Carey to take the gospel to India? One verse, John 10, 16. That one verse, you know that William Carey is the father of modern missions. He's the father of the modern missionary movement. And Carey's robust theology 
is actually what fueled his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Kerry knew, based on the words of Christ, that he had other sheep, where? In India, that needed to be brought into the fold. So what did Kerry do? He obeyed and took the gospel of Jesus Christ to India. Why? I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. Kerry knew that if he took the gospel to India, God's sheep would hear his voice, and they would come in. He knew that. What, what incredible, robust theology. And you know the history. He, he grinded in India for a long time before people started coming to faith in Christ. But he went, and he stuck it out, through thick and thin because of the words and promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this verse ought to fuel us. It ought to fuel you at your workplace. It ought to fuel you in the United States. It ought to fuel you in our mission to the ends of the earth. I guarantee you that Katie and Kyle think about this, don't they? God has promised, and, and he will come through with his promise. So Luke 10, 19, 19, 10. What does the Scripture say? reminds us that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The lost sheep, he came to glorify the Father by redeeming sinners. Then we have verse 17 and 18. The Bible says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge that my Father has given to me. Now, it teaches us that Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, has a work to do. He has a labor to do in order to please his Father. Now, at first glance, my spirit kind of rejects that wording. Does yours? I mean, not, I wouldn't say my spirit, but my mind, as I look at verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. I mean, my, my thoughts are, Father, did you not love him before? I mean, what is the condition here? What's going on in the text? Well, number one, it goes against our uh, pop psychology view of what love and acceptance really is. It's kind of quiet in here. The Lord is expressing something that he actually does in order to lay his life down for the sheep, and then the Father actually has a specific, special love for the Son because he lays his life down for the sheep. Now, this, don't think for a moment that this means the father was holding back the love until the son actually made the purchase, and then he loved him. No, it's in the quarters of time that the father and son had the agreement. And so Jesus Christ is following through with the exact obedience and dependence to his father that he said he would do. And for that purpose, the father has a special love for his son, a love reserved only for the son of God, a special kind of love. And here's the deal for you. It's the Lord Jesus' merits that earns you the Father's approval. And you get that by grace through faith, not by any works. We receive those merits by faith, and in doing so, we experience the Father's love and the approval of Christ. Note the last part. It was also the command that the Father gave him. Now look, can you all just imagine? Uh, we get a little glimpse of this in Hebrews 10. Uh, in the volume of the book, it is written, O God that I come to do your will. So here's the Son of God talking to the Father as he condescends into this world. Isn't that amazing? I come to do your will, O Father. Well, we're kind of looking into the same kind of conversation at this particular point. There was some time in eternity past 
before the foundation of the world. We, we've got to know that there was a conversation, uh, a contract between the Son of Man, the Son of God, and the Father in the mission to save the lost sheep. Y'all do get that, right? Because they existed in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when there was no time. They've always existed. And so there's this conversation and contract. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus was going to be on a mission to save his people from their sins. Can I let you know on a little secret? Can I let you in on a little secret? Let me read chapter 6. It would do you justice and goodness to look at these verses. Chapter 6, verse 37. Verse 37 of John's Gospel, of chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Is this not the conversation we're looking in in John 10? I come in obedience to the Father, his command, verse 29. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last of day. You know what that means to me? The Son of God will always get what he paid for. He's the Savior, ladies and gentlemen. He will get what he pays for. And then, of course, uh, connecting his sacrificial death with the purchase of his people. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Again, you ought to be flipping the pages. You don't know this by heart. I doubt it. All right, if you do, great. But listen, Revelation chapter 13 beginning in verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. What is this? The beast, right? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So we have a connection with the slain lamb, and we have a connection with God placing our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. When? Before the foundation of the world. How many of you believe that the Son of God will get what he paid for? <laughs> it's clear. The lamb that was slain, and those the Father has said, I'm going to call my people, my sheep will hear my voice and come to me. He laid down his life, and he took it up again. And he ascended into glory with the Father. He did what no one else could ever do for us. He brought glory to his Father like no human being could ever bring glory to God. What does the Father love more than anything else in the entire universe? His glory. Did y'all know that? It says it over and over and over and over again. He loves his own glory. And Jesus did that which magnifies God's glory to the uttermost. And that's why the Father has a special love for his Son. Now, let me suggest something to you before I run into the next part. Uh, y'all, there's no sports, right? So y'all good today. We're learning so much. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3.15, listen. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Just a, another reminder of what the shepherds that I'm going to give you should do. All right, quickly, number of things, parallels to true pastors. Good night. Where did the time go? 
Number one, true shepherds after the heart of Christ recognize that there are hirelings out there. Folks, y'all do know that I know that, right? And I hope that you know that there are pulpits that are filled all across America where the people are hirelings. And they're not God called. And they may be good at giving you the warm fuzzies. They may even preach sermons that make you feel very good about yourself. Yet in the end, a hireling is only there for job security. They're not there uh, to be connected to the people. They're not ever getting to the brass tacks when it comes to dealing with the souls of people. As a matter of fact, in most churches, if you begin to deal with the issue of the soul in a lot of churches, they'll probably be looking for another group of sheep to pastor somewhere else down the road. It's, it's at this point that the calling in a pastor's life becomes vitally important. The calling drives us to preach uh, passages that may not be very, very popular, but we have to preach it and let the chips fall where they may. It's that sense of calling that drives me to preach the Word of God and not pare corners. Well, it's easy to do that, right? Let's just pare this corner over here and not deal with it. Let's just run around the ends and the areas and just kind of touch on them superficially. Why? Because people might get upset if you don't pare the corners and you don't do run-ins and, and, rather than preach the Word. Well, one of these days, the Bible tells us that these shepherds are going to stand before the great shepherd and give an account for what we've done and how we've led you. And I really value his opinion more than you. I value his opinion more than looking at you. When I look out at your face, there's something else that's standing over me, and it's the Lord God. And one day, I'm going to stand accountable to him. And I need to be very careful, because your souls have been entrusted to me. The Bible says that. Make sure, if, you, if this is not your church home, and you're looking for another church home, or you're out in the community, make sure that the man you listen to is God-called. That he's not a hireling. That he's not someone just seeking a career. Because we live in a day when people are more concerned about, here's what people say about church. Uh, what's in it for my kids? What kind of programs do you have? Uh, what's on the buffet for me to come to your church and be a part of this church? You rarely ever hear people say, Pastor, I want a preacher who will care for my soul. And that's what's most important, that you have a man of God who will speak the truth, care for your soul, and your eternal well-being. And all God's people said. All right, number two, true shepherds after the heart of Christ realize that it is not a job, but a calling. And if we flip over to Acts 20, and you probably want to keep your finger there because we will go back. Acts chapter 20. In verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Acts 20, 28. Who makes a man a pastor? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. It's the Holy Spirit that makes a man an overseer of the souls of people. And there is a sense of responsibility and a charge to me and that responsibility. And although a pastor does not have ownership of the flock, now if we're, I don't have time to take you every, back to John 10, but it says that Jesus actually owns them. That's his flock. Well, we don't own you at all, but there is a sense where I've been given an allotment that I oversee. And you just so happen to be that allotment, right? And I have a responsibility 
1 Peter chapter 5. If you can't make it there, just listen, because I'm going to read fast. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, listen to verse 2, chapter 5, 1 Peter. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, that, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Listen to this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Folks, I'm telling you, I have someone else that's way more important for me to listen to than you, right? I have to listen to what God would say to me regarding this. So, uh, we understand that it's a calling, and that's what's driving us, the call of God upon our lives. And I think today we would do well also to think about the bride of Christ being purchased by his blood. Do you all know what a weighty responsibility that is, to look out to you and know full well that many of you, if not all, I don't know today, but you've been purchased by the blood, very blood of Christ. I mean, that's what it's saying in the text. Jesus Christ purchased people with his own blood. Now, folks, this truth ought to weed out negligence among pastors, should it not? You are looking out over the flock that Jesus Christ purchased by his own blood. Should we take the pastorate seriously? Absolutely we should. I must look to my charge. You are worthy of my utmost care. If Christ bought you with his blood, then you're certainly worth my labor. Amen? You should be regarded with my deepest interest and most tender affection. And you know what I've learned? We do well to throw away all these stupid marketing books. And we do well to go back and read true pastors who pastored churches and loved their people like Richard Baxter. You want to read a man who loved his people? Read about Richard Baxter. You'll see what it means to love a flock that's entrusted to our care. Number three, true shepherds after the heart of Christ have a mutual relationship between pastor and people. Is this good and healthy for a pastor and his people to have good relationships? Is it? Now, in our world, the rancher just flies over, zoom, zoom, zoom. He has no idea who you are, Right? It, it, could that even be remotely close to what Paul is saying in Acts chapter 20? I don't think it can be. Listen to the word in 1 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5. We ask brothers to respect those who labor among you. That's not the best translation. We ask you brothers to know, that's the literal word, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work's sake. In other words, there is a premium in the Bible that you ought to get to know your elders, that you ought to know the pastor who leads you. And there's the flip side of that, that men like us need to get to know you. And I can promise you, I don't care who you are in this church, if you want to get to know me, you can. Uh, I'm not off limits. I never have been. As a matter of fact, if I had to pastor like many mega pastor preachers do today, I wouldn't last. I couldn't last without relationships because that's the way God called us to be. He called us to pastor and shepherd people. This no doubt indicates a close personal relationship between pastor and people. It's a charge for me to engage in, my li in the life of this congregation, but it's also a charge that's put in your court to engage into the life of your pastor. Y'all getting this? 
It's a charge to both of us. I've, uh, many times as I've walked into this congregation and I look around at people, you know, I'm, the Lord impresses upon my heart as a shepherd, pray for this individual as you preach this sermon. That's why it's good for you to have your picture in the directory because when I flip through, I'm like, oh, here's these people. Sometimes I look and I don't have no idea, but I pray for the faces that I see. Why? Because it's vitally important for us to do so. Number four, true shepherds after the heart of Christ sacrifice for the flock. Did y'all see that about Christ? I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I want to tell you something. It's impossible for any man to atone for your sins. Okay, we're not bringing that part of it, but we are bringing about how important it is for pastors to sacrifice for the good of their flock. Chapter 20, verse 24 of Acts. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. That is perhaps one of the finest verses for pastors to stick into their heart and live it out. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. So vital for us to think about. Paul said his own life is not that important. What was important? It was to finish the course and the ministry that he received, check this out, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God can put that call in a man's heart. Only God can do this. This is the kind of calling that sustained martyrs who gave their lives for Jesus Christ. This is why we need your prayers. I need you to pray for me that God will kindle this fire of Acts 20, 24 in my soul every single day. That I won't get my focus off. That I'll keep my focus on finishing the course that God called me to finish. I want to be devoted to the ministry that God has given me. All elders should realize that this is the most important thing in the world. To watch over the souls of the flock that has been entrusted to them. Number five, true shepherds after the heart of Christ labor in gathering lost sheep. Is that not what Jesus was after? In 2 Timothy 4, in verse 5, uh, Paul has been reminding, I mean, Peter's being told, no, what would I say, Timothy? Yes, Paul is telling Timothy to preach the word, do all these things, and then he gets to verse 5 and says, do the work of an evangelist. Could, would it be easy for pastors to preach, 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 and forget about evangelism? So for Timothy, he was timid, right? We know this. And maybe that was something he was lacking in. And Paul would say, hey, you're preaching the word, but don't forget that I'm gathering souls, and therefore you need to be evangelizing, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we not only teach the word, we ought to do the work of an evangelist. Why? Because John 10, 16 reminds us that Jesus Christ is gathering his people. And number six, well, I've gone fast, haven't I? True shepherds after the heart of Christ seek to please the Father. I mean, folks, what did Jesus do? Everything in obedience to his Father's will. This is the command, Father, that you've given to me. I want to pray that one day John 17, 4 will be etched on my tombstone. If you know anything about John 17, your mind should erase to it. Jesus said to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Isn't that amazing? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't all of us love for that to be our, the epitaph on our gravestone? God, you, you put me on this earth and saved me, and I finished and accomplished the work that you've asked me to do. What more could we say? In conclusion, I would remind you that there's only one good shepherd. Did we start there? 
There's only one good shepherd. I, it is he alone, right, that will never fail you. Our great Lord has established under shepherds and pastors to care for the flock from time to time and more often than not. Guess what we do? We fail. There are many, many men. All men are failures, right? All of us. And there's no way that pastors will ever lead you without failing in some kind of way. And we're not talking about gross sin. We're just talking about we're sinners, right? But I want to remind you to never let the failures of your under-shepherd be a reflection of the good shepherd because he's absolutely perfect. It is Jesus Christ alone who shed his blood for you. And again, Hebrews calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. It is he alone that intercedes for you night and day. May, all, may, I, may I always lead you out of loving and concerned uh, in my heart for your well-being. But you need to remember the great shepherd of the sheep. That he is doing his incredible work in us. His love runs so incredibly deep for us. That he would give up his life. He would lay it down for us. Is there any designation that should bring about our worship to him that encapsulates the pastoral ministry of Jesus any better than the great shepherd of the sheep. And it's connected in Hebrews 11 that he lays down his life for the sheep. We ought to all stand in awe and worship him because he is the great shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life for you. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, for the plan from eternity past that the great shepherd of the sheep would lay down his life for us. And Lord, there's not as many people sitting in this building as normal. We get that. But your spirit's still at work. Your word is powerful to change lives. And Lord, we look with anticipation to next Sunday as we talk about what it really means for the Son of God to lay down his life for the sheep. What, what does it mean to think about Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday? What should it mean to Christians to contemplate the great shepherd of the sheep laying down his life for his people? God help us. God help me. Lord, this is a, a transparency from my part to, to ask this congregation to pray for their pastor and to understand the dynamics of, of what's involved. This is why, uh, Lord, we don't pare corners and we, we preach the word why? Because we have a responsibility. We have a charge from you. We have a calling that motivates us because we are going to stand before you one day. God help us. God help relationships in this church. Help people to get to know me and our other elders and pastors. And Father, help us to, uh, to be willing to sacrifice for the work of the ministry because of the care for souls. is so vitally important. God help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.